0: Hello, this is Tebby Troy, and welcome to New Books in Public Policy. Each time we look at a new book in public policy and talk to the author to see what he can tell us from behind the scenes in the public policy arena. This week we're going to be talking to New Republic senior editor Noam Scheiber about his book, The Escape Artists, about the inner workings of the Obama White House and its economic team. He has all kinds of hair raising stories in there about dysfunction among the different economic aides, and we're going to talk to Noam about how he came up with all the information that he found, and what it says about economic policy at the highest levels in the American government. Noam Scheiber, welcome to New Books in Public Policy. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you as well. Uh, First question, as I always ask, is who are you and how did you come to write this interesting book?
1: I'm a a senior editor at the New Republic, left of center political magazine here in Washington. Uh, That basically makes me a staff writer. I can write the book um, after having covered the Obama campaign, really the, the presidential campaign in 2008, I started uh, covering it back in the summer of 2007. So it was a, a long haul. And by September of 2008, um, when the financial crisis hit, I was already sort of starting to think about what I might do um, after the campaign. I was having uh, discussions with my editor, then uh, Frank For, And uh, I was thinking that I might like to do something other than kind of pure politics or pure kind of inside baseball, political coverage. Um, at that point, the financial crisis hit. Um, it became very clear that uh, the economy and the financial system uh, were going to be the big story of the next few years, regardless of who won the election. Um, and so it was a nice way to, um, to have a little bit of continuity to be able to cover some of the same people, the, the candidate who would become president in particular, um, but also shift gears um, and cover, um, you know, less, kind Of overtly political topic and more, uh, a more substantive topic. It also fit a bit with my background. I had a, a master's degree in economics. So things seemed to line up pretty well, uh, both uh, in terms of my, I guess, my qualifications, my interests, and, and the kind of uh, the storyline uh, that the world was suddenly interested in.
0: Yeah, I think the world is quite interesting. And you could tell that by uh, you know, Ron Suskin also wrote a book on a similar topic. And the one thing that really struck me in reading both your book and his book is. This notion that the world, meaning the financial world, both Wall Street and Washington seem to be run by tennis playing Jews. You know, uh, Uh Humbert and and Gene Sperling and Alan Kruger, and they all play tennis together and they go back and forth between Washington and Wall Street. Do you have that sense as well? And what does that say about our financial system and our Washington system?
1: Yes, it's funny. I actually wrote a piece for the New Republic about the tennis playing among our senior economic uh, officials, uh, Larry Summers, Gene Sperling, as you say, but also Tim Geithner is part of this group. They uh, attend uh, a lot of these guys attend tennis camp in St. Petersburg, Florida um, every year uh, for a couple of days. The Nick Volatieri Tennis Academy, the famous Andre Agassi uh, uh, trainer. Um, uh, Look, it is clearly um, a rarefied universe. group of people who know one another. Um, I think it's more um, it's more insular, sort of on the policy side than on the Wall Street side. Um, by which I mean, there was a small number of people, um, most of whom had worked for Bill Clinton, um, who um, who had experience um, fighting financial crises. Uh, then it was sort of overseas crises in the '90s, uh, Asia, Russia um, eventually Brazil, Argentina, a little later on. Um, and, um, and when Barack Obama took over, uh, as, as president-elect first, and then as president, um, he decided that, um, he wanted people who had, you know, direct experience in dealing with these crises. And that just turned out to include a, a pretty narrow, uh, universe of people. Um, and so I think, um, so I think, you know, it clearly is insular. These guys knew each other, worked closely with one another. Um, and um, and I think you can sort of fault them for a, a bit of a lack of imagination. Um, on the other hand, um, you know, the way I sort of tell it in my book is um, Obama had been running, you know, uh, since early 2007 when the crisis hit, he had been running on these big kind of ambitious uh, proposals, healthcare, care, uh, cap and trade proposals to deal with climate change and while he took the financial crisis seriously um he didn't want it to be you know the be-all and end-all of his presidency so um he turned to these people who had experience um so that um the crisis wouldn't entirely consume you know every uh, bit of bandwidth that he had as president um so i I do you know I, i fault them for thinking a little bit narrowly about personnel um but I sort of understand um you know why he was inclined in that direction as well,
0: yeah you know, one point I think that should be made though is it was a somewhat controversial decision. I mean these were seen as Clinton people, old guard people, and Obama was trying to bring in a, a new group of people, so it wasn't uh, you know it wasn't obvious that these would be the guys, right
1: not at all I mean, it certainly wasn't obvious, and he had run you know of course as an outsider as a kind of insurgent candidate. I think the important thing to understand about Obama is. How he actually, despite all the insurgency rhetoric and despite all the packaging as an outsider, he really does have a kind of establishmentarian sensibility. Um, this dates back to his Harvard Law School days. I mean, you know, he he became the president of the Law Review. Um, he um, when he first ran for Senate in 2003, I, I talk about this in the book um, for U.S. Senate from Illinois. He called up Harvard at the Harvard Economics Department in search of uh, of an economic advisor. And the response he got was essentially, you know, people at the Harvard Economics Department don't really advise, you know, obscure Midwestern state senators on their Senate campaigns. Um, I love that um,
0: story in the book, by the way.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that was really his first impulse. And then, you know, this runs through his presidential campaign. I mean, um, you know, one of the names that they had bandied about internally um, to, to advise them for the presidential campaign. Was Alan Blinder, who had been the head of uh, Bill Clinton's Council of Economic Advisers. He had been a vice chairman of the Fed. You know, one of the grandest brand names uh, in all of economic wonkery. Um, and that was, you know, one of the people that they wanted to, to court for this job. Uh, and it was only when they were basically told, "Look, a Blinder-like figure isn't going to go work for you. Hillary mm-hmm. is really the person that any establishment figure is going to go work for." Then. He turned to Austin Goolsby, who he's known from his uh, from his Senate campaign. And even, you know, even when things went further, I mean, I did a story in 2008, 2008, by which point Obama was really starting to get some traction. Uh, um, And and the people he was bringing in um, were told, you know, one of them recounted to me were told by his, his aides you know, make very, very clear that you're an expert on the subject, that you're sort of the brand name on this subject, uh, because he wants to know that when he talks to policy people. So um, so the guy has a real establishment area and sensibility. Um, you know, despite the packaging as an outsider, it doesn't shock me um, that he would turn to these people when he, you know, basically got his pick his of the litter.
0: Yeah. You know, I, I think people who staff the White House Office of P- Personnel. Uh, in the future um, should look at this book because uh, there's risks to the strategy that you lay out where people uh, who have been there before are, can be problematic because they bring some tensions with them and pre-existing hatreds or rivalries. But yeah. also bringing somebody totally new is a problem, too. You talk about yeah. Christina Romer and how she was completely out of her depth at the beginning. She didn't understand the most basic acronyms that we in Washington kind of understand as the part of the regular alphabet soup here. And one thing you said that really struck me is that she didn't understand the verbal cues of how to work in Washington meetings. Can you talk a little bit about her and her adjustment?
1: Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, um, I tell this story in the book where um, uh, the president asked her a question about unemployment, asks her basically for a, a, you know, not the top line number, but a little more sophisticated number. And she gives it to him off the top of his head, uh, off the top of her head, not realizing that the, the, the then president elect is going to step out into a room full of reporters and then parrot that numbers that she's just giving it, given him. So she hadn't even checked this number. Um, and, and and as she sees him walk out and talk of these reporters, she's absolutely sort of panic struck. Uh, and, you know, is like scrambling to check to see if she could get on the right number. So,
0: yeah, she, she was right. She, she was correct. In that. She
1: turned out to be right. But, it, it, you know, uh, it, you, you you sort of want to be sure before you, you check it when the president's going to go tell the world, you know, that this is this is the case. Um, yeah. Everything from things like that to, you know, I tell another story about how, you know, at, during the transition, there were multiple meetings, you know, some of them happening at the same time on any conceivable subject matter. Um and Christina Romer sort of was the only one who sort of, you know, only one of these principals who believed she had to attend to every single one of them. You know, so she's absolutely running herself ragged and still Peter Orzag, her colleague who is gonna be the budget director, pulls her aside and says, you know, you don't have to attend every one of these. You you have a, a luxury as CEA director, you can kind of pick and choose your battles and decide what you want to focus on. And and again, it's kind of a, a revelatory moment for her because she just doesn't realize how this how this works. So um you're absolutely right. There are pitfalls to being a complete novice when it comes to this um in the same way that there are pitfalls i mean they're different pitfalls but they certainly exist when you're experienced and i think you know to the extent that i have a critique of obama and the way he staffed his administration it's the proportions were out of whack you clearly can't have an administration particularly dealing with one dealing with an economic crisis entirely staffed with christina romers but having too many of larry summers and tim geithners in there um, led to some of these other problems that we can talk about or I can talk about right now. Um, and I, and so I think the proportions were a little off. They just skewed too much towards the veterans, um, who'd done this before, and there was not enough new blood. Um, and as a result, um, I think they, they created some real problems for
0: themselves. Yeah. just one more thing on Christina Romer, the story you, you tell about it shows that her out of her deafness or her lack of preparation lasted all the way until the end of her tenure where when she said to some people in a White House meeting, oh, I'm thinking of leaving. And she guys, I guess, wanted validation to uh, people to say, hey, you should stay. Um, But instead they said, "Okay, let's prepare a press release. And no, that's
1: that's exactly (laughs) right. Great story. This was uh, this was September of 2000 and uh, 2010. And she had wanted to basically stay till January um, because it would have made it two years and um, you know, uh they kind of planned accordingly. And um so she comes in and says, you know, I could I could leave now or I could leave in January, you know, <laughs> and they and they say essentially, great, well why don't why don't we plan on having you leave now then? Um uh you're absolutely right. It, it, it every tactical decision um that you know that uh kind of Washington veterans um understand how to deal with uh almost as second nature, she seemed to sort of play the wrong way.
0: Yeah, and then the the cross pollination of hatreds I found really amazing. So Geithner and Gensler, even though there was some similarities, uh, they right. both worked together in tre- I guess Treasury before, but they didn't like each other at all. And Summers versus Orzag, and then Romer versus Summers. Um, right. And then if you look at the the Jody Cantor book, there was Gibbs versus Jarrett. Um, right. Can you say this White House. Can you talk a little bit about these cross pollinated hatreds? And would you say that this White House is a little more watch your back than your average White House?
1: Yeah. Um i I you know look every white House has its share of dysfunction um I do think um um you know there was a certain familiarity i guess that bred contempt in some respects, and umza and summers in particular were were you know had actually been pretty friendly i mean Orzek had been director of the Hamilton project this This sort of advocacy slash research group run out of Brookings that Bob Rubin had had you know founded and bankrolled basically or helped you know fundraise for. Um, They had worked together. They had you know co-written papers um, when Orzag was the director. Um, But um, you know they immediately sensed that um, they would be rivals. Um, uh, You know Summers as part of his deal with Rahm Emanuel, the chief of staff, based. Um, wanted every prerogative that was accorded to the National Security Advisor to to flow to him in the economic sphere. Um, So anything that had remote um, relevance to economics, he wanted to flow through his office. And of course, the budget is, um, you know, an economic, uh, you know, a big economic project. And and Orzag immediately sensed that Summers was going to try to poach on his terrain and wanted to protect it as much as possible. So this proved to be a, a huge source of tension from the very beginning. Um, you know, whenever Summer people from Summers' office would call OMB um, and, and try to, you know, solicit information, um, OMB would get very defensive to the point where um, Orzak had his chief of staff, uh, I'm sorry, had every aide refer these calls to his chief of staff just so they could Keep track of the outflow of information to the NEC. Um, it got to be a very contentious, uh, contentious situation, and I think it was just because, um, you know, partly partly there were some ideological differences, but really it was um, it was um, two guys um, who were very bright, um, who um, who both basically felt like they were capable of of running the show, um, and they sort of um, sort of acutely felt. Uh, and were acutely aware of any kind of uh, of kind of wandering of the other person into their terrain. Um, and in a way, um, uh, it was more awkward because because they had known each other for so long, and they had mutual friends who, in many cases, were working for the other side. You know, people sort of felt like um, you know, it's almost like when mom and dad are fighting, um, and you're the child. You know, you you almost feel it more acutely because you're suddenly forced to choose a side, um, and you're you're forced to choose between people that you have relationships with. So it got, it got very, um, very sort of raw as a result of, of all these cross cutting relationships that preceded the administration.
0: You talk a lot about Larry Summers and about his childhood and his upbringing. And there's one thing where where you talk about how he thinks if he applies his mind to anything, he can be the best at it, the debate club and stuff like that. And then he plays some guy who's a top chess player. And I wasn't even quite sure what happened in that chess match. You had a quote from the, the chess player who I guess beat him, who just said he wasn't for but a match, but uh, w- w- what happened there?
1: Yeah. So Summers does have a, ten- you know, he's a brilliant guy clearly, but does have a tendency to overestimate his own ability, particularly when he's kind of coming fresh into something, you know, there's a, a an area where he's a novice. He thinks he can get out to speed, you know, more quickly than I think he actually can. And so he had this friend in high school, Mark Moskowitz, who went on to become a, a reasonably successful political consultant, who was um, like a, you know, a citywide chess champion. And, um, so Summers taught himself the game and was it was getting good and decided he's he's going to challenge his friend, uh, the chess champion. And the friend says, you know, Larry, I could beat you blindfolded. You know, really, it's it's no, it's you, you're not on my level. And Summers says, you know, there's no way you could beat me blindfolded. Like I refuse to believe that. And so they play and Moskowitz. Is- is blindfolded and he just wipes the table clean with Summers. Uh uh oh, I didn't and,
0: catch that he actually did wear the yeah, blindfold. It wasn't clear. Yeah, yeah.
1: He won blindfolded and um, you know, he he gave me this quote afterwards, which is um, you know, yeah. that is Larry, basically, you know, you um he sort of comes in guns blazing and then and then reality sometimes hits him in the face. Um uh and 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 it certainly did in that case. You know, the 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 thread from that to the rest of the narrative in the book is I think Summers often overestimated his own tactical and political savvy uh, when it came to navigating Washington. And, you know, the guy clearly has tactical savvy and understands, um, you know, the way politics intersects with policy, but I think tends to overestimate his, his understanding of this and probably outsmarted himself a bit uh, a number of times. Uh, the time that I focus most on is in the passing of the stimulus, where he kind of, you um, he kind of um, factored in tactical, political considerations into his um, into his recommendation to the president, rather than just presenting the kind of pure um, economic policy argument. And uh, and I think that had some bad consequences.
0: Yeah, and then you've got Rahm Emanuel, who has uh, got his own share of ego and is um, all rough elbows, and he's supposed to manage this herd. And you have that one story where. Summer starts screaming at him in a profane way about how they can't get the motor pool right. So he can't get a car in time. Right. And he said, can you get get me a car? And, and Emmanuel says offhandedly, I'll get you a car, Larry. And, and and Larry screams at him. Don't say it if you can't do it, because Larry yeah. knew the White House. He knows that the National Economic Council advisor is not eligible for a car.
1: <laughs> That's right. That's right. No, he absolutely knew it. And, um, you know, this was um, it, it's funny. Someone once told this to me. And I, I think it's very true. Emmanuel Rahm Emanuel has this reputation as being very gruff and in your face and very conflict loving, you know, kind of seeking out conflict. In fact, it's the opposite. Rom, and I think this was a real sort of structural problem in the administration. um, Rom is actually kind of conflict averse and he comes on very strong because he's trying to sort of ward it off. You know, (laughs) Um, (laughs) it's kind of a, 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 you know, a a protection device almost. He doesn't want to get in these situations where he's got to, um, he's got to deal with people and look them in the eye and deal with them head on. So he he does this, you know. He comes on gruff to sort of ward them off, hoping he won't have to do it. And and I think um, you know that that actually had substantive problems because Ron would tend to kind of ignore problems and then they would fester and then you know he'd come back to them and come up a couple months later and it would turn out to be you know by that point very difficult to deal with them. Um, you know one problem I talked about in the book is financial reform. Um, I think Rom, to his credit, saw that. Um, This was going to be politically very important. You know, you can't shovel hundreds of billions of dollars in fact trillions when you factor in Fed guarantees to banks and other financial institutions. Rom saw that you would need a credible uh, financial reform plan um, from the very beginning uh, because you would need to convince voters that as terrible as this was, that you had to spend all this money bailing these institutions out. Um, you, you, it was not going to happen again. Um, and financial reform was going to be the way that you showed them that it wasn't going to happen again. And um, Geithner had a completely different view. He felt like um, you don't do reform in a crisis. It just it becomes even more destabilizing. You know, the system's already fragile. And here you want to go starting to shift things around and rearrange the way we regulate these institutions. And so Geithner was very savvy in, in realizing that if you could just kind of kind of straight arm wrong for a little bit, he would lose interest and kind of back down and go off and do something else and maybe come back a couple months later, by which point you could have a conversation about what you were prepared to do. So I do think that, you know, while it, it seems sort of um, kind of trivial and maybe gossipy, I, I do think that actually gets at something, which is Rom really did um, want to avoid conflict a lot, despite his, his kind of superficial crossness. And that, um, that did allow things to fester at times in unhealthy ways.
0: Yeah, well, Rahm is now gone. Obviously, he's mayor mayor of Chicago, and uh, Daley was around for a little while, but uh, didn't get the best reviews. And now Jack Lew is there, and he seems different to me than the other alpha male nerds of the first few years. Now, know like Orzag um Summers? I mean, he's a very bright Jewish person, but right. he's different. Is that he doesn't seem to be the same kind of chest beater? Is that a does, would that be a right analysis? You think?
1: I think so, yeah. He's definitely a more earnest guy, a certainly a less Machiavellian guy. It would be very tough to imagine Jack Liu in this kind of endless, um, tit for tat turf battle of the swords that Peter Orzag and Larry Summers engaged in. Um, I think that, um, you know, actually, Lou was the person they originally wanted for the NEC director job, which is the job Summers got, um, because they thought he would be very good at you know, dealing with all these other egos, and managing the process. And I, I think they were right. Um, it just turned out that they they needed that particular musical chair um, once they installed Deitner as Treasury Secretary, because there wasn't another high profile place to stick Larry Summers. So I think their impulses were right. And I think Jack Lew, um by all accounts, um, was um, less, um, less brass, kind of took up more, 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 sp- took up less space. Um, um, and I think, you know, um, was a guy who, I mean, one of the problems I try to, one of the kind of recurring themes in the book, I mean, I, I think you see it most with Summers, but it certainly figures into other areas and with other people is um, this kind of overthinking of tactical considerations and, and over uh, applying probably excessive weight to them. And it's ironic because he's now chief of staff, which is a very political position, but I think um, Lou is someone who's, who's less that way. I mean, he's more earnest, and more of a wonk, um, and um, by which I don't mean kind of substantively more capable. I mean, these other guys were very capable substantively, but he's more of a kind of substantive purist. And to the extent that he's he's got sort of tactical notions, they're not about, you know, how you position the president, the president before the country and before the voters, but how um, you negotiate with appropriators in the House to arrive at this Agreement in this budget agreement. So it's a very interesting choice um, because it says to me that Obama um, thinks that, you know, the focus of his his second term is really going to be kind of hammering out deals, you know, kind of economic deals, whether it's the budget or tax reform um, with Republicans, that that will kind of consume, you know, the next two years. Uh, Because if it was, um, if you were planning on sort of playing. Uh, for the voters, you know, broadly speaking, I don't think, um, I don't think Jack Lew would be your guy.
0: You said in there about the, the second term, it sounds like uh, the, the Obama White House is already assuming that they're going to have a, a second term. Do you think, um, A, do you think that's the assumption? B, do you think with Jack Lew, they found the right guy if that's going to be, um, if there is going to be a second term? And And C, um, is that what you get? We're getting at with the title, the escape artist. They had a lot of dysfunction in the first term, but they've managed to uh, make it through, and they're going to be in, in good shape going forward.
1: Um, yes, I do. I do think they they're they're planning on a second term at this point. Um, they they they've been very good this time, I and mean, we had sort of a false dawn on the economy in 2010, and then again in 2011. I'm sorry. Two, yes, 2010 then 2011. Um, so I think they played a little cooler this time. Um, I mean, just now now that we've gotten several months of a pretty good job news um i think they're now a little allowing themselves a little um you know a little, to claim a little more credit but um but i think they've been pretty good about not overplaying it we don't hear talk of you know mission accomplished or anything like that um uh i think lou uh I- i'm skeptical that he's the right choice i mean i think that um, um uh i think that you know it may be the case that. The next year or two is going to be consumed with negotiations on Capitol Hill um, with Republicans, and that you need a, a Lou on your team. But I don't know why the right spot for him is in budget director. Um, it seems to me that. Well, he's um, been there. Well, he, he has been there, but. Quite, um, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but it seems like, you know, that's kind of, you know, your chief of staff needs to be a little more ecumenical, I think, and be able to sort of transcend um the kind of tactical considerations and and try to hit a slightly higher note or at least um kind of enable the president to do that and i'm not sure that lou is the right person for that i mean you know there are other reasons that you appoint someone chief of staff you trust them you work well with them um you find them to be loyal um and i think lou is all those things conscientious um, but, boy scout. um what's that is a boy scout He's a boy scout, absolute boy scout, loyal, guy. trustworthy, etc. And um and so I think he, he dots those eyes, but um but I, I think you know um they they need someone who you know I, I look I think the big mistake of Obama's um uh first few years was to um um was to kind of just miss where the country was really you know I mean there was this huge um, populist frustration. The fact that we shoveled a lot of money at the banks, and B, that unemployment rate was really high, and there just wasn't—I mean, Emmanuel got that, but he was too frenetic and too sort of conflict-averse to ultimately um, kind of execute the right response. Um, but um, I think you know you still need someone who gets that. You know, um, you you still need to sort of see um, where the country is, and and there's very little in in re- in, in lose background that suggests to me that he is someone with a real finger on the pulse of public opinion. Um so um I, I think that they've been a little too insulated, you know, and, and 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 not um actually thinking through enough um the consequences of this really intense public frustration. Um and I don't think just that's going to go away just by virtue of Obama winning re-election if that should happen. Um on the on the title escape artist, yeah, I mean the the, the idea was um was was a, a variety of things. I mean, was just these were people who um you know, who were skilled in uh rescuing uh sort of both presidents and economies from really dicey situations. And it's a little bit ironic, um, you know, the ideas to suggest that while they were the people that you might be inclined to turn to, um, they um, you know, they, they brought some baggage with them too, you know. It was uh, there was a little bit of uh, a best in the brightest style irony there. Um, um, but, um, you know, look, I mean, I think uh, I say it in the epilogue of the book. There's no question that they escaped um, the, the the fate that was, you know, the, the worst fate, which would have been a depression. Um, I mean, we now know that the economy was shrinking at an annual rate of 9 percent in the fourth quarter of 2008. That's a depression-sized number, you know, particularly if you allow it to sort of snowball. Um, so they, they clearly helped avoid the worst. And, and in that sense, you know, maybe Obama wasn't wrong um to tap these group of people who had some sort of track record on that front. Um but um but it's meant to be you know it, it's meant to be I guess semi ironic. Um there there was a reason that you would think of them this way, but um but you were but Obama probably um probably was um overconfident uh, by the extent to the w- to which they were they were very daft at, at at executing this sort of escape.
0: You mentioned a couple of minutes ago about the negotiations with the Hill and how that's going to be really important in the next, let's say, it's just a year or, or maybe five years. Um, and there, there was one section where you talked about how uh, Eric Cantor and John Kyle, the senator from Arizona, were negotiating with Jack Lew, I guess, when he was still at OMB and, and Gene Sterling mm-hmm. at NEC. Mm-hmm. And you have Kyle saying to them somewhat incredulously, and I'm quoting here, there are Medicare savings that you think would be good policy but you won't do them unless we agree to more taxes? And then right. Lynn Sperling say yes. I mean, is, is that right. the approach of the Obama White House, that they want to raise taxes so much, or they want to make the Republicans raise taxes so much that they're willing to overlook good policy?
1: Yeah, look, I mean, for them, they think um, they think two things. Um, one is a substantive point, and the other is political. The substantive point is uh, they don't think just cuts. You can you can get there. You can't get... Um, you know, you, you know, they think that uh, revenue is at a historically low place and um, they don't think you can get to sort of a long-term stable, you know, balance um, without raising revenue. So, um, um, so, so, so there's that point. Now, you could argue, well, sure, but um, you should just do the cuts you can do um, and pocket those and then we'll talk about revenue down the line. Um, and, and that's where the more political point comes in, which is they just think, um, this is about, you know, Obama said it before. It's about shared sacrifice, and there's no way um, that you can ask seniors who are by and large, you know, um, uh, the seniors who, you know, who, who would be affected by these cuts, um, you know, disproportionately who are by and large, you know, not affluent, um, to, um, uh, to, to to bear the to bear the brunt of them um, without um, some kind of you know, reciprocity from from the affluent um uh on the revenue side. So um so it's both a substantive and political point. Um but um uh but I think the um the political point, you know, I I kind of make it with a lowercase p rather than a capital p. It was more by political I mean just a, a almost a shared sense of fairness rather than uh, or a sense of shared fairness uh shared sacrifice rather than um um something that you know they felt like um, they were going to appeal to this or that particular constituency by, by um, you know, holding the line on that. Um, it, it really was, um, you know, I, I described another scene in the book um, where um, these negotiators come back to Obama and they're sort of, um, they, they don't yet, uh, and, it, and it, they turn out to be wrong, they don't yet know they're going to get this deal, but they describe, you know, if things continue along this trajectory in their negotiations with Cantor and Kyle, maybe they'll be able to get some kind of deal where, they close these. Um, they eliminate these tax breaks for oil and gas companies um, in exchange for doing something on Medicare. And Obama kind of looks at them and says, "You know, that's it. You know, that's all you got for me." Um, and and basically says, "You know, if that's all we're doing, um, that that doesn't seem fair to me. I go back and get more get more sacrifice from the wealthy here." So um, so you know, I, I, I and that was kind of a reflex on Obama's part. That wasn't after like looking over polling data and decided you know deciding like oh, this is going to kill us among this particular constituency if we go this route. Um, but I do think it was, it, was, it was political, and I mean that in kind of the broadest sense of the word, they, it, in the sense of, of, of kind of what your values are and what your priorities are. One
0: what, what other thing that jumped out at me in that particular section, was you're talking about Eric Cantor, who has been criticized a lot from the left, and especially sort of official democratic policy to, to criticize him, but you called him serious, pragmatic, and strikingly well-prepared. Do yeah. you think that kind of doesn't jibe with the, the public perception, or at least the Democrats' uh, attempted public perception of him?
1: I think so, yeah. I mean, Eric Cantor turned out to be a very um, interesting character for these guys to deal with. I mean, they definitely felt um, you know, from his public persona that they were going to hate him, you know. And I think Obama doesn't like him. You know, there's, there's something between clearly between Obama and Cantor. But the guys who were in the negotiating room, the Gene Sperling, the Tim Geithners, the Jack Lews, um, were very impressed by him. Um, not ideologically. I mean, they were still far apart ideologically, but they they very much, um, you know, felt like he was a guy you could engage with on a policy level. Um, whereas Boehner, you know, dealt with things at such a high level of abstraction and was so removed from details that it was kind of worthless to have private conversations with him. You know, he had to check with aides and with lieutenants like Canner, you know, for everything um, that that had any kind of um, policy consequence, Canner knew his stuff. He was he was well informed. He could talk details, um, and you know, in a way, I think it was almost um, dangerous for these guys. It, they found that very seductive. It reminded them of um, negotiations with Republicans in the '90s, where um, a guy like John Kasich. Um, got in the room and seemed very different than his public persona, and so they thought, "Oh well, you know, um, John Kasich proved to be a guy we could do business with in the '90s. Um, you know, once we got in the room with him, we thought he was different. And then they get in the room with Cantor and they see that he's a bit different in that he's so well prepared and so facile with this stuff. And I think that led them astray because, as as knowledgeable as Cantor was, and as and as able as he was, um, and fluent with policy. Um, he still wasn't going to budge on anything, you know, because he had these, these constraints that he was operating under, which was that his caucus wasn't going to go for revenue hikes. It just wasn't going to do it. So I think um, the Cantor persona that they found in private actually ended up um, kind of leading them astray. They thought they could do more business with him than they actually could.
0: I have one more question for you before we get to our final wrap up question. Uh, I really, as, as you can tell, I read the book carefully. And I also read the footnotes because you had so many great, juicy tidbits Uh in there, and so many of the best and the juiciest tidbits were from that that dreaded phrase: "anonymous interviews with Uh author." Um, What's your thoughts on this approach? On you know, Bob Woodward obviously does similar things, and are these names going to be public someday, seventy-five years in the future, or something like that? Do you write something in your will about it?
1: (laughs) Right, it's a very fair question. You know, I I try to be as transparent as possible. I mean, Woodward doesn't really ever include, but you know, I try to give you the dates and some description of the person, at least. Um, and, you know, beyond that, I, I did go to people and, and try to get them on the record. You know, so you'll notice, you know, there's some, you know, Peter Orzag on the record quotes and Christy Romer and Larry Summers has one and there's some Geithner quotes. So I, I did, whenever possible, try to get these guys on the record. I mean, just, you know, the unfortunate fact of Washington and doing these books is people are anxious, you know, about talking to you um uh and particularly being candid um so it was um it was not surprising um but um you know i look you, you try to um you try to put in place several safeguards against people just spinning you uh you know under the cover of anonymity um you know one of the things i found very helpful was you know don't just rely on the lighthouse to you know if there if they there's a part of the story that you're telling where they interact with someone else whether it's Another regulator or, you know, people on Capitol Hill talk to those people too, you know, and compare notes so that, um, people just aren't BSing you, um, under the cover of anonymity. Um, so, you know, you, you try to, you try to nail stuff down the best you can and, and cross check and, and double and triple check. And then, you know, again, where possible, you try to get people on the record. Um, but, um, but yeah, you know, the bottom line is these books couldn't be written without. You know, granting that cover to sources, and um, you know, um, uh, I think uh, you know, posthumously, you probably, uh, you you probably, you know, the 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 agreement with the source, you know, uh, probably is good for their lifetime. So I think uh, I I would feel comfortable if people are still interested in 50 years, um, you know, revealing names, but um, but I felt like based on the level of transparency I provided probably went beyond the typical, you know, Susskind or Woodward account, and, and I, I tried to push it as far as I could.
0: Well, I'll, I'll follow up on you in about 50 years on that. Okay, I look forward to that, yes. Yeah. Uh, so the last question is our signature question here on New Books and Public Policy, which is, if you were Tsar czar for a day, what would you do? What public policy proposals would you put in place to uh, solve some of the crises we face today?
1: Um, I think the biggest thing I do, you know, I've heard uh, there's been sort of discussion about this recently. I think it would be uh, carbon tax. Um, and I would, you know, this got a, a lot of buzz, I think, a couple of years ago. I think some of my colleagues have talked about it, too, more recently. But, you know, I think you um, I think you impose a carbon tax and then lower payroll tax to make it watch out for workers who would be hit disproportionately hard by that. Um, I mean, I'm um, a fanatically um, anxious about global warming, <laughs> Um and uh i really do think it's an existential crisis and it's one that we're incredibly late in um in in getting to as someone with some economics background um the logic of this is just it's unassailable. i mean there's this huge externality <laughs> on carbon that um that no one um factors in when they purchase it or produce it uh or pr- produce energy um of which carbon is a byproduct so um uh uh, that, to me, that's the no-brainer, you know, I, I would do that on, you know, it's, in the same way that Mitt Romney would repeal Obamacare on day one, I would impose a carbon tax on day one if it were up to me.
0: Well, there you have it. Noam Scheiber, thanks for joining us on New Books in Public Policy.
1: Hey, thank you. I really enjoyed it.
0: I hope you've enjoyed this podcast with Noam Scheiber, author of The Escape Art. As you can tell from the podcast, there are a number of very strong personalities inside the Obama White House, and especially on the Obama economic team. They don't always get along, and their internal struggles are not always to the benefit of the country. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. I hope you continue to listen in the future. And as always, my recommendation to you is to keep reading.